Welcome to Fundamentals of Canadian Law. I'm Matt Shepard, and this week I'm talking to Queen's Law professor and course developer Hugo Chaquette about the terms Aboriginal law and Indigenous law. I thought they were synonyms until I actually took the course Law 202-702. Hugo is going to walk us through these distinctions, as well as the evolution of the words we use when we talk about the pre-colonial peoples of North America. This show is brought to you by the Queen's Certificate in Law, the only online program of its kind offered by a law faculty in Canada. You can find out more about the certificate at takelaw.ca. Taking a break from his duties running Law 202-702, this is Hugo. Speaking to Hugo Chaquette, he's an adjunct assistant professor here at Queen's Law and the course developer for the Certificates Aboriginal Law course, Law 202-702. Hi, Hugo. Hi. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we're going to talk a bit about the difference in terminology between the, the term Aboriginal law and Indigenous law, but before we even get there, I think it might be important to unpack a bit how we got to the terms Aboriginal and Indigenous for people that were here before colonial people arrived. Yes, and, and, and that's an important uh, thing to establish, and I do that at the beginning of the course as well. Um, so, you know, as you're aware, there's been a long history of different terms used as global terms for indigenous people, that is, the people that were here before uh, people from Europe came. Um, what's important to say at the outset is that, of course, those, those global terms really are applied from the outside in the sense that, or at least they have been traditionally, in the sense that people who lived here uh, before Europeans came would have regarded themselves as their specific ethnic groups. So they would have considered themselves to be Haudenosaunee or, or Iroquois, or they would have considered themselves to be uh, Haida, for example, uh, and not uh, in any sense uh, part of a overarching larger group. And so to that extent, then terms that refer to peoples um, in that sense uh, are sort of similar to European, right? Uh, no one says if, if they're from Europe, they might now with the European Union, but no one originally would have said um, I'm a European or would have defined themselves right. primarily I'm, I'm that German, way, right? I'm German, I'm Italian. Exactly. Uh, so it's important to keep that in mind from the outset. Um, now, of course, the first term that we would encounter is the term Indian, uh, which is what's sometimes confusing to people is that while in Canada that term is very much pejorative and is, is sort of a no-no, uh, we don't use that term anymore, it continues to be used by several uh, tribes in the U.S. Uh, they prefer the term American Indian, and that's how they would define themselves, uh, and that's certainly the legal term used. Um, in a similar way, uh, Alaska Natives primarily use the term Alaska Natives, but they will still refer to themselves occasionally as Eskimos, even though that term similarly in Canada has become, is pejorative and is not to be used. Um, so those, are, those original terms, the, the term Indian, of course, comes from the fundamental misunderstanding uh, of Christopher Columbus believing they had landed in, in, in Asia, but it continued as the primary term. Uh, for, for many, many years. Of course, it's an inappropriate term in the sense that it, it's geographically inappropriate, it's confusing, and of course it doesn't take into consideration uh, the views of, of the people themselves, um, you know, in terms of what what their origins are either. Well, um, it's it's fundamentally fairly disrespectful. You introduce yourself as Hugo, I say, oh, you must be Robert. No, I'm Hugo. And then I proceed to call you Robert for 400 years. That's it's not great. Absolutely, yeah. So there's a fundamental power imbalance as well in the sense that it's an imposed term. It's also a term that's been used in legislation and policy in a very derogatory manner uh, and specifically to classify people deemed Indians as second-class citizens. And for that reason, it has those, those historical connotations attached to it that make it a term that is not uh, 
not seen as as a, as a good term to use. So um, I, I feel like we're kind of on an evolutionary arc of terminology, starting from Indian and sort of moving away from that, and then to Aboriginal and kind of on to Indigenous. Is that absolutely? And so what happened in the last, uh, you know, certainly last 20, 30 years is that there's been a, a real constant evolution in the terminology. So the term native, for example, was used uh, as a replacement for the derogatory term Indian uh, for several years before. Um, in law, the, the term Aboriginal was used uh, with its original meaning of the people. So Aboriginal literally means here from the origins, right? Uh, and so that was the meaning given to it in law. And that that meant that you know certain rights attached to people who were deemed Aboriginal because of their existence on this land uh, from the origin, and because of that, it was the term used in the Constitution Act 1982, uh, which enshrined certain rights of the people now called Aboriginal. And the the Constitution Act specifically defines the term Aboriginal peoples as the Indian, Inuit, and Métis peoples. Uh, so those are the three. So that's the sort of the legal definition of the term Aboriginal, if you will, um, in the Constitution. And for that reason, for several years, most government departments um, and certainly in official policy would have used the term Aboriginal. The term Indigenous was always used by some groups uh, throughout the world. So, for example, in Spanish-speaking countries, the term uh, Indigenous was, was, was more prevalent. Um, but it, it really rose to prominence with the movement towards the Universal, or sorry, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And for that reason, that's part of why it's become such an accepted term is because it really grew from a movement that was uh, dominated by Indigenous peoples themselves. So. The, the, the story of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is really a, a tremendous success story of Indigenous peoples taking charge and really pushing for this to happen uh, and, and becoming politically empowered through that process uh, and also finding connections and, 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 and points of relation with other groups in the world that, that define themselves as Indigenous. So for that reason, it's really gained a lot of uh, legitimacy as a self-imposed descriptor, if you will, that's still secondary for, for, for Indigenous peoples to the, the name of their, their people, the name by which they know themselves, right? Um, but of all the outside terms that, that are umbrella terms, it is preferred because it, it's viewed as having emanated from this movement uh, that was very much generated by Indigenous peoples themselves. Right. And I mean, fundamentally, people should get to decide what they're called. Absolutely. And and that's, you know, a, an important principle. Uh, and, and we've seen recently that that has been becoming increasingly um, taken on by government and other mainstream organizations as well. So we've had the Department of Indian Affairs and Northern Development uh, renamed to the Department of Indigenous Affairs. Um, you know, significant move there, some, uh, a lot of uh, significant um, symbolism around the adoption of the term Indigenous because it, it is viewed as being, of all the different terms for, uh, you know, to be applied in general, it is viewed as the best term. And I mean, use. even the CBC. Absolutely, yes. CBC Aboriginal, uh, what used to be the CBC Aboriginal unit has now become CBC Indigenous. Um, and, and generally, there's a movement towards using Indigenous in preference to Aboriginal. But even even with kind of that preference, um, you draw a fairly clear line in the course between the use of the term Aboriginal law and the use of the term Indigenous law. Yeah, and it's a line that it has been drawn by by several people, most notably the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, um, which in its its report uh, basically said that all Canadians should understand the difference between Aboriginal and Indigenous law. And that's a striking statement because most lawyers don't understand the difference between Indigenous law and Aboriginal law. 
Um, but so law is the one area where it remains important to make that distinction because what we understand as Aboriginal law is very different from what we would classify and understand as Indigenous law. And so to, to sort of give you the, the quick overview of it, Aboriginal law is what we would consider to be the law of the Canadian state. So in its broadest sense, it's the law of the Canadian state as it relates to Indigenous peoples. Um, traditionally, of course, before we had constitutional rights uh, for Aboriginal peoples, this would have been limited to the, the, the common law of Aboriginal title and Aboriginal rights. So the idea that the people who were here before had retained certain rights in both the land and or rights to usage of the land, such as hunting and fishing, because they were here from the origin. That was that's the original meaning of Aboriginal rights. Uh, and Aboriginal law at that time would have been limited to that. Um, and since 1982, of course, we have now the, 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 the idea is that Aboriginal rights have a constitutional dimension. Uh, and there have been other areas where the specific situation or role of Indigenous peoples has been recognized. So, for example, in criminal law, um, we have uh, the section um, in the criminal code that mandates that particular circumstances of Aboriginal offenders should be taken into consideration in sentencing. Um, and was interpreted by the Supreme Court in the Gladue case, and so this is commonly known as, as uh, a Gladue report is the document that is presented to the court then in those circumstances. Um, and similarly, courts, there are now specialized courts that handle only those cases that are known as Gladue courts, uh, which will handle specifically the sentencing of Aboriginal offenders and, and attempt to use more restorative uh, justice measures. So even though those are part of um, criminal law, really, the standard criminal law of Canada, they could be seen in some way as being connected to Aboriginal law in that they, they are law of the Canadian state that affects Aboriginal peoples. But, to, I mean, to, to go back to your earlier clarity of definitions, all of this kind of bundles together as kind of an outward going in thing. It's, it's how the state is applying law to Indigenous people. And Indigenous law, almost like the term Indigenous, is kind of an inward going out sort of thing. Absolutely, that's exactly it. So Aboriginal law has been the law of the Canadian state as imposed on Indigenous peoples, right? Indigenous peoples were not originally part of the Canadian state, and many would argue that they are still not part of the Canadian state. So one of the thing, one of the distinctions is that Indigenous law is the law of Indigenous peoples themselves. And there is some limited recognition within the body of Canadian law, so within the body of Aboriginal law in Canada, for uh, some aspects of Indigenous legal systems. So for example, uh, the law of Aboriginal title, which is very much common law, um, does recognize that part of determining whether a group uh, qualifies for Aboriginal title or is able to prove Aboriginal title will be looking at some of the legal traditions of the group itself. Um, another example would be that uh, customary um, laws around adoption and marriage were routinely recognized in the 19th century uh, as being valid in areas where European control was not was not existent. So, for example, in the Western uh, Northwest Territories, um, if you know uh, the, the 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 customs of, of uh, indigenous legal customs at that point would have been recognized by the Canadian court system because they had to be, those, that was the only law really prevailing in those areas. But outside of those limited forms of recognition, um, the Canadian legal system really has not recognized these as separate legal systems, and yet they, are, they continue to be in operation um, in, in, in Indigenous communities throughout the country. Uh, and, and if anything, they're getting um, more attention now and they're becoming more important because of several uh, reasons, but one, the primary one being increasing use of self-government powers by Indigenous peoples um, 
either through negotiated agreements with the federal government or and the provincial governments, or you know unilaterally uh, exercising that self-government power. Uh, and so, because of that, you know, indigenous law and indigenous legal principles are becoming more and more important and more and more prominent. Um, and law schools are are trying to deal with that uh, particular problem that you know this is something that should be learned as part of the Canadian legal system. Thank you very much, Hugo. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Hugo Charquette. If you're interested in Aboriginal law and Indigenous law, you may want to look into Law 202-702, Aboriginal Law, at takelaw.ca. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is recorded at Queen's University, situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Our theme music is by Megan Hamilton, also on staff here at Queen's Law, and you can find out more about her music at meganhamiltonmusic.wordpress.com. If you like this podcast, rate and recommend it on iTunes. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening.